Well, welcome back, everybody. Whether you're here just after a 15-minute break or you just came this evening, this is a come-and-go retreat, so many of you are doing just that, and I'm so glad that you're able to take advantage of it in that way. It's been really fun for us so far to have all of you practicing here and Every time we open our eyes, it seems like there's a new group here, so it's actually quite fun. (laughs) So it's very interesting, isn't it, that we're here on silent retreat, and there's some sound happening, as Bruce pointed out. Um, This sound might have been irritating to some of you. It might have been startling to some of you. It might have been not noticed by some of you. And I think that's really interesting, isn't it? What is sound? And what's the difference between sound and noise? I also noticed some people were laughing about it. I was among them. I didn't think that the sound was pleasant. I don't know if any of you actually thought it was pleasant, as in the feeling tones, pleasant, unpleasant, or neither, but I thought it was kind of humorous (coughs) that here we were, trying to practice silently, and there is a lot of interesting, in quotes, sound going on. There's the drill, there's the, sounds like throwing of metal pieces, (laughs) there's... There's clomping around above and below and all around. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting. So how can we take this and actually incorporate it into our practice? There are a couple of different ways. First of all, um, in the talk last night, Bob was talking about really the big question. What is this life about? And I want to ask that question, but in a very small way. How can we take the most ordinary things in life and have that be our practice? How can we take that? It's not exalted. It's not special. It's just something. It's human activity. And it's good for me because um, I, I have to admit I've been, through my life, sensitive to sound and sight and uh, touch. Uh, when I was a, a young person, my mother informed me that even as a baby I used to really cry if there was too much light coming into the crib. The second uh, memory I have of too much was when I went on a retreat at Insight Meditation Society in Barry, Massachusetts. I was really excited. It was going to be a six-week retreat, and I had a room by myself, which I was so surprised and happy about. I was really looking forward to this silent retreat, and um, apparently other people didn't know it was silent because there was a lot of clomping through the hallways, a lot of slamming doors, And I thought, how could this happen? How could it happen? This is a very special retreat. And how could people be so, uh, you know, uncaring or or 
just not very, you know, whatever it was that made them do that. So I had an interview sometime later with one of my teachers, and as I'm telling her what's going on, she looked at me and she said, well, of course it bothers you. You're an aversive. So this might sound like a strange thing to say, but actually it was quite a relief. Um, She explained to me, in case you haven't heard this story before, that roughly we can be divided into three personality types. The greedy type, the aversive type, and the delusional type. (laughs) But we all have slices. We all have slices. Just some of our slices are bigger. So I had a big aversive slice. She was letting me know. And she said aversives are sensitive to sound, especially. And I thought, oh, well, that's a relief because it didn't mean it was my shortcoming, my fault, something I had to feel guilty about. It was just the way I was wired. And so I was really appreciative of that. And from that point... I've actually worked with sound and touch and things quite a bit since then. And and I've also so I've I've worked with it in a way where I really felt it in the body to see what that what the reaction was because that's what it was. It was a reaction. Even if it was a sensitivity, even if it's the way I'm wired, it's a reaction. So to really feel it in the body, to know it to know the experience without trying to change it, just knowing it. And of course, that's part of mindfulness. And then not beating myself up about it, not thinking there was some personal fault, is an example of kindness. So tonight... I would like to talk, it's actually this afternoon, I'd like to talk about how our practice, how this meditation practice interweaves with kindness. Before I get to that, though, I have something to share with you. Um, Often at this time in the retreat, by the second day, we kind of get the idea that you're beginning to cook, that things are heating up, I don't know if that sounds true. Maybe difficulties are arising, like the, the reaction to that interesting sound. And uh, maybe there are other challenges. I did hear some in our group interview today that there are people facing challenges already. This is part of the heating up of practice. So I'm going to read you something from Rumi. And then I want to try to unpack it and see what it means for us and our practice. This is called chickpea to cook. And if you don't know, a chickpea is the same as a garbanzo bean. A chickpea leaps almost over the rim of the pot where it's being boiled. Why are you doing this to me? The cook knocks him down with a ladle. Don't you try to jump out. You think I'm torturing you. I'm giving you flavor. 
so you can mix with spices and rice and be the lovely vitality of a human being. Mm -hmm. Remember when you drank rain in the garden? That was for this. Mm -hmm. Grace first, sexual pleasure, then a boiling new life begins. (laughs) And the friend has something good to eat. Eventually, the chickpea will say to the cook, boil me some more. Hit me with the skimming spoon. I can't do this by myself. I'm like an elephant that dreams of gardens back in Hindustan and doesn't pay attention to his driver. You're my cook, my driver, my way into existence. I love your cooking. The cook says, I was once like you, fresh from the ground. Then I boiled in time and boiled in the body two fierce boilings. My animal soul grew powerful. I controlled it with practices and boiled some more and boiled once beyond that and became your teacher. So what about this chickpea? It doesn't want to be boiled. Do you want to be boiled? I don't either. (laughs) But we do talk about how things are heating up and how we're cooking. So how does this how does this match? What's going on here? The the cook says, I'm preparing you to mix you with spices and rice so you can be the lovely vitality of a human. So this garbanzo bean, which is hard and dry, doesn't have that vitality yet. It's not edible. It's not nourishing. It can't offer anything. It needs to be cooked, boiled in time, boiled several times, as a matter of fact. It said... First you were in the garden, like the chickpea plant, rain that nourished it, the little chickpeas grew, but it wasn't just for growing, it was for this, it was to offer offer this as sustenance, sustenance for people. Maybe in your practice you offer sustenance to others as well as yourself too. And eventually, there is this understanding, this pain, these challenges is not a mistake. It's not a mistake. It's for a purpose. It's softening. It's transforming. Changing into something of nourishment, something of vitality to be offered to oneself and others. And we seem to need a teacher. Not just this kind of teacher, but life is a teacher. And we seem to need a guide to help us through these challenges. But you know, it sounds like boiling hurts. And some of the things we go through seem to hurt too. 
So how can they be our teachers? How can we work with that? So I want to talk a little bit about that tonight too. How can we work with that? I love the poem because it's um, there's a very, there's a lightness to it. There's a humor to it, and yet it's it's also quite serious. Wow, this is a difficult and arduous trip I'm about to take. Did you think when you started meditating that it was going to be all pleasure? You did. I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, I remember there's a storyteller named uh, Clarissa Pinkola Estes that some of you may have heard of. She said some of her friends used to come up to her and said, I really want to be enlightened. She said, they don't know what they're asking for. (laughs) (laughs) This is an arduous journey, just like the chickpea. (coughs) And so we need some help. We need help that comes from inside, and we need help that comes from outside. So the help that we have available to us here is our practice. It's mindfulness and kindness. So the mindfulness we use is from insight meditation, which is a translation of Vipassana. It even still says Vipassana Santa Cruz on the front of the door, even though we've changed our name to Insight Santa Cruz. Vipassana is the Pali word, and it has some really interesting meanings. It means two things that are really helpful for us. One is discrimination and separation. And the other one is penetration. So when we explore our experience, we're doing both of those things. We're separating the strands of experience and we're penetrating them to know them. So we'll talk a little bit more about what that, how that plays out, how that works. So now we can go to mindfulness. What is mindfulness? We say we practice mindfulness, and there seem to be a lot of different ideas about what mindfulness is. So I'm going to just offer one working definition, which you can accept or reject as you please. Mindfulness are are a group of skills, unlike any skill they can be developed. This is actually an important point because when I was going through school, I was going through college many years ago um, in psychology and early childhood education and special education, the operating wisdom was that there were windows of opportunity in terms of development, a human development. And if you missed a window of opportunity, your development was going to be really changed, stunted, obstructed. Well, that's proven to be totally untrue. 
Because neuroscience tells us today that you're never finished learning until you stop. That you can develop new skills all the way through your life. There may be ideal times to learn things, but that does not impact your ability to learn them. That's why some of us, like I'm one of them, started meditation practice on the late side, and it's okay. It's all right. We're still learning, all of us. So the skills involved in mindfulness are concentration. That's a word you've heard. And yet, just to talk about what it is, it's your ability to hold your attention on some chosen object or activity for a certain period of time. We use this for meditation, but you know about it from your life. You've all had periods of concentration where you're really focused on something. It could be your work. It could be some art project. It could be music. It could be anything that you put your attention toward and hold it there. The second skill is called sensory clarity. That means you know when there's a sound, you hear a sound. When there's a touch, a physical (coughs) touch, you know it's a touch. When there's a thought, you know there's a thought. You can separate the strands of experience that way. That was part of the definition of Vipassana. Taking it into something more familiar that we've been working with, even if you're using it for the in-breathing and the out-breathing, you know when it's a long breath. You know when it's a short breath. You know when it's a ragged, tight breath. You know when it's smooth. So we're discriminating. That's at an even finer level. We're discriminating and separating so that we know what we're attending to. And the third very important part, very important part of the definition is equanimity. That word's already been used a few times, and what equanimity means is the ability to stay with your experience as it is without pushing it away, without grabbing onto it. It feels like a kind of a balanced place to be, but balanced with movement. Think of, um, I think of a, the old-fashioned circus performer that would put a, a board on top of a, a barrel, and they'd have to balance. They don't stay in the center necessarily, but they're constantly adjusting. That's my image of equanimity. Maybe surfing is a good example, or scales that aren't really quite balanced, but they're still finding their place. So equanimity is balance of mind and ability to be with experience without contention. So what is experience, since I'm throwing that word around? 
Experience is how we know our world. Experience is sight, sound, touch, taste, smell, and thought. Those are how we experience the world. We don't experience it any other way. And the world is not just out there. The world is also in here. So we experience the world that way. And why should we want to know the world in this way? It was said that the Buddha was the knower of the world. He came to a place where he knew the world. He knew that world out there and this world in here and the flow between them. So I mentioned that we were going to be talking about the way metta or kindness and our meditation practice of mindfulness interweave. Sometimes when we translate some of the Pali words, the translation isn't quite satisfying. Um, Metta can be translated as universal friendliness or friendliness or kindness or loving kindness, kind regard. You can kind of get your own definition going. What's really interesting is that in the suttas, it's not exactly referred to that way. It's referred to more as non-hatred and non-ill will. This is really interesting to me because uh, it's also very common in the Buddha's description of things not to really describe what something is, but to describe what it's not. So this is a description of what metta is not. Hatred and ill will are not what metta is. So it is non-hatred and non-ill will. And when we work with it, we find out that, well, what's left if you remove hatred and ill will? Maybe it is kindness. We'd have to see. So, um, it's kind of a daunting task to think of approaching challenges like the, like the uh, chickpea boiling in the water. How can we possibly do this? How can we possibly face challenges and why should we anyway? Most of our, you know, Life, our technique for avoiding things that were unpleasant might have been to do our best to turn the other way and to forget them, to exile them. And I'd have to ask all of us, did it work? And the answer is, it didn't work for me. I don't know about you. But we keep trying. It seems like we keep trying the same thing over and over again. And and didn't you hear that one definition of insanity is trying the same thing over and over again and expecting different results? 
but I think um, that's very human. I think that's what we do. We want to avoid those challenges. So we need a lot of help, as I said, internally and externally. And we can get some help from metta. And I'm not even talking about the formal practice. Maybe you've heard about the formal practice before. There's several ways of doing it. There are phrases that one can say, wishing for health and well-being, for safety, for peace of mind. And these wishes, these aspirations, can be directed toward the self and toward uh, a graduated Um, in a graduated way toward other beings, toward teachers, toward friends, toward people we barely know, and toward difficult people. And eventually in this practice, the boundaries seem to be loosened between self and other. There seems to be developing maybe a kind regard for everyone. That's one form of formal practice. Another form of formal practice, which is really mentioned in the suttas, is radiating. When you think of a radiator, an old-fashioned radiator, heat comes out from it. it. It just moves out kind of in all directions. And so radiating kindness, that formal practice, would involve actually sending through visualization and through feeling um, those same kinds of well wishes out in directions, in all the different directions. It's another formal practice. And these practices can be very, very helpful. They can be amazing. When I started uh, practice I think within about six months, somebody offered a six-month course in metta practice. And what I learned is that it was a great way for keeping my mind from distraction because there was something to do. Repeating those phrases over and over again. I'm not sure I got the deep meaning from it, but I was really happy just to be able to stay focused. So it's continued to be a very important practice in my life, and I can see in time what happens is that my reactiveness has changed. My internal voice has changed. Instead of being critical and self-judgmental, I don't know if that's true for any of you, Are you ever critical or self-judgmental? It would be okay because that's what we grew up with. That's our culture. Kind of a not very supportive culture. One that says, you didn't really do well. You didn't do good enough. You could do more, you know. You should be able to do that. And you should be able to do it all by yourself. Every individual is responsible for himself, no matter what. 
we get all those messages, all those messages that are really not very kind and also not very true. A lot of it's just not true. I know it's our culture because there are plenty of stories about people from other cultures who are shocked to see how really mean we are to ourselves. The Dalai Lama being one who didn't understand for years what this self-loathing was. And when he understood it, he was really affected, really affected by it. I have a friend whose son has been living in Thailand for probably about um, 15 years. And he married a Thai woman. They have a child. And this was interesting to me. If you ask any Thai girl to finish this sentence, I'll tell you how it's finished. And think about how you might have finished it as a woman or a man. It was, I am fill in the blank. What would you say about yourself? I am, just think about it for a moment. Well, her response, and the responses of all the girls, is, I am beautiful. I'd be surprised if all of us would have filled in the blank that way. So we come from this culture that's not particularly kind to us. And we have to do some extra work to bring kindness into our life and into our experience. And I would say without kindness, we can't do this exploration that we're being asked to do in mindfulness meditation. We can't explore our experience without some kindness because there's there's a lot of challenge. And it feels like it feels like you're going into a dangerous territory if you plunge in. So how do we accomplish this? How do we manage to do it? Pema Chodron, who is a beloved Tibetan nun, has a metaphor for what our mind is like. She said it's like a pond, but this pond is all stirred up, so there's a lot of silt floating around in it. And because of that, because it's so muddy, you can't see through it at all. You can't tell if it's blue water or brown water. It's too muddy. But when that silt settles, this is like Frosty the Snowman from last night. When that silt, it's a little different. When that silt settles, you can see. You can see that it's clear water. 
you can see all the way down to the bottom of the pond. But the problem is, some of the things at the bottom of the pond are things you just assume not see. I did a cleanup for the San Lorenzo River some years ago, and I want to tell you some of the things we pulled out of the bottom of the river. We pulled out cars, car parts, old tarps, shoes, um, everything that you can imagine. Dead carcasses were in there. Not of humans, happily. (laughs) Um, uh, Paint cans, you know, all kinds of toxic stuff. I think they measured it in tons. I'm not kidding. They measured it, the, the amount of things pulled out of the river in tons. This is the, these are the cast-offs. This is the unwanted. This is the unloved. This is the unacknowledged. And so the fearful part is what's at the bottom of our pond. What's down there that's been cast off, not acknowledged, unloved, unwanted, maybe despised? We don't want to go there. We don't want to touch it. It's like the chickpea in the boiling water. It's hot. I would say that we can't go we can't go there without kindness. We can't go there. Some other things that help too is that in our meditation practice, before we begin any session, before we begin any exploration, some things that will really help. They've already been alluded to. One is relaxation. Tightening up against something makes it worse, makes it persist, makes it last, intensifies it. (coughs) So when we bring body tension to our practice, we do all those things, even though we don't know it. So relaxing to the best of our ability, relaxing the body, really consciously feeling the muscles release. And I will tell you that I, this is, this is really a work in, in progress. This is something that can change little tiny bit at a time and can make a big difference. Really make a big difference. And the other preparation, besides relaxing to the best of your ability, has to do with posture. There was a woman who used to come to our new-to-practice classes some time ago from a Zen tradition, from a Soto Zen tradition. She said, I'm so glad you guys teach techniques. I'm so sick of being told, just sit and just attend to your posture. I thought, well, posture is amazing. Posture is a reflection of our entire history, of our entire um, our, 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 uh, our comfort and our attitude. 
but it's also uh, it's also a reflection of our history, our emotional, our physical history. It's all in posture. But that too can be worked with. That too can be changed. To be upright and have your the emphasis be on the structure of your body rather than muscular tension is like a gift. It feels good. It just feels okay. But some of us are challenged. We have physical changes in our body as we age, and we have maybe some other issues that have come from illness or from from just structure, the way we were born. So it's not always possible to be perfectly aligned. But it's just something that we work with, knowing that the more relaxed we can be, the more comfortable and upright our posture is, and also the other area of comfort is attitude. This kind attitude, this welcoming attitude to welcome your experience, whatever it is, without pushing it away, without grabbing onto it. Ajahn Sumedho says, I have all the time in the world to be with this. And I developed something that I use because I certainly have had issues too. I've had health issues and, and structural issues. And so I say, I can be with this for the rest of my life. And I feel what that feels like. I don't mean the terror of it, <laughs> which it could feel scary in that way. Just that with that relaxed body, relaxed posture, open attitude of kindness. I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to get it right. I can screw up and it's okay. I get another chance. Sometimes I call it the voice of the kind coach. The one who says, it's okay. You did all right. It doesn't matter. You can try again. Because each of us will get caught in our old habits, in our old ways. So some words for metta aside from those I've already given that are very, very close to it. One is patience. Patience. Not this kind of teeth-gripping endurance. That's not patience. This relaxed, okay. An okayness. I can do this. I can be with it. I can boil a little bit longer. And it's a patience where you're willing to be, again, with this experience without fighting yourself. Did you know you actually fight yourself sometimes? Don't do it. 
It's not helpful. It's like uh, the example of training the dog. It's not helpful to beat the dog. The dog will eventually, you know, mind you, but it's not going to be the kind of minding you want. And don't beat yourself either. Don't be mean to yourself. Don't have an attitude of contentiousness. Probably the best words are some that, uh, in an article by Joseph Goldstein, he said, one of his teachers said, at the end of everything, the only advice he had to give was, be kind to yourself, be kind to everyone else. He didn't say be an expert meditator. He didn't say that you should have one-pointed concentration from now to the time you die. He didn't say anything like that. He said, be kind to yourself and be kind to others. And if you can do that, that's enough. So we want to, we can practice the formal practice of metta, but we also can really develop this attitude, this allowing attitude toward ourselves and our experience. And then what happens is that reaches out. You seem to all of a sudden have that same okayness about what other people do and their imperfections and their screwed up behavior. You say, you make up a story, as Sylvia Borstein says. We're always making up stories about people when we don't really know anything. So you might as well make up a good story. (laughs) So that's what we can do. We can allow for more. We can create more space. And it feels good. It's a good kind of feeling good. So I encourage you it. So to end this, I actually brought a stack of a lot of suttas. And if anybody, they come from suttas. They're all things that um, are wishes for well-being. Different um, suttas. If you're interested in seeing them, I'll leave them up here. and You can even take one. We are going to chant one of them together right now, and this is the Buddha's words on loving-kindness. It's a translation, so different people will translate it differently, and it's very interesting to go from one to another to see how it differs. Um, I'll explain how we do this, if you haven't. Can you raise your hand if you've never done this before, never chanted this chant? Okay, good. It's not a problem. Um, I'm passing some. I would also like to say that um, you're welcome to keep one of these if you like. I use this for deep contemplation. The monks often say, our practice is about mindfulness and reflection 
And reflection is a way of knowing. We can go through this without paying any attention to the meaning, which is fine. And we can also pull it apart, just like as suggested by the practice of Vipassana. Does everybody have one? Does anyone need one? Wanna, here, we, I guess we need a couple more. Yeah, if you can share, that would be great. No, I think it's okay. I don't actually need it. So, do if you want to take this, do take it and try kind of pulling it apart. What is it saying? What does that mean? What does the next one mean? For now, we're just going to chant it. And the way we do it is there's only three tones. If there's a little tri- filled-in triangle underneath the word, that means you go down a tone. If there's a little filled-in triangle above a word, it means you go up a tone. If there's a line underneath, it means you hold that for a while. We're going to bumble through this together. And so if you want to make a judgment about your voice, this is not the time to do it. (laughs) This is not really a really tonal song. This is just three notes, and we'll just do it. And don't worry if you're way off. It doesn't matter. I'll start. The, see that part right under the Buddha's words on loving kindness? That, that's bracketed. Now let us chant. That's, who, that's what the leader does. I'll pretend I'm the leader today. <laughs> now, now let us chant the Buddha's words on loving kindness. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness. And who knows the path of peace? Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. Peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. 
even as some mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outward and unconscious, free from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding by not holding to fixed views. The pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being free from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.